you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. The title of the message today is Jesus' Authority fosters hope. Jesus' authority fosters hope. I make mention of this, not always do I give a sermon title, but I felt that it would be helpful for us today in light of looking at Matthew 9 and looking at the overtone that is there. There are oftentimes in the way that we speak, there are two kinds of conditions. Uh, There are hopeful conditions, and then there are hopeless conditions. Uh, For instance, we may come to discover that we have some kind of a serious medical condition, and one of the first questions that we often ask uh, when we speak with a doctor, is there any hope? Uh, In other words, uh, will this treatment uh, help or in some of the most severe cases, uh, am I going to make it? Is there hope? Uh, Now, we've defined Christian hope in the past, uh, but let's think for a moment about what we mean when we say uh, that we have hope. Um, First, when we're speaking of hope, we're looking at something ahead in the future, and we're looking at something good. So when we are thinking about hope, we're thinking about something that's good, something that's in the future, Uh, But also when we speak of hope, we also oftentimes speak of the the basis of that hope for the good or the basis for the good that will come in the future. We speak of it as hope. And and I believe Scripture does the same thing for us. So before we look at our text, I want us to look at the 42nd Psalm. So turn over there and it will give us an example of what I'm talking about. Psalm 42. And we won't read the entire psalm, but I want us to look at verse 11. The psalmist writes, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Now think about this in just a moment. Something good, something in the future, And the basis of that good in the future, we often speak of as hope. And I believe this verse of Scripture helps us see and understand how the Bible speaks of that as well. So first off, we recognize, one, that there is something that has created turmoil in the soul. We've already been singing, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. We looked at a psalm of lament today. Uh, We sang just a moment ago when we sang, Jesus is my ransom, looking at all the questions that could challenge our hearts as it relates to uh, good and the future and hope. And at each point we came back and the object of that hope was what? Jesus is my ransom. Jesus is my ransom. And every time we would ask a question in the course of that song, hopefully you saw that the answer is the, the basis of the hope that those things will not happen. 
the basis of the hope that we will not be in despair, the basis of the hope that we have life rest in the ransom of Jesus. In other words, what he did for us uh, on Calvary. Well, the psalmist says the same thing. There's something here uh, that has created turmoil in his soul. If you backed up and looked a few verses, you would realize and recognize in verse 10, as with the deadly wounds of my bones, my adversaries taunt me, and while they say to me all day long, where's your God? In other words, his enemies taunt him and challenges his faith, and yet the basis of his hope, notice, is in God, because he says hope in God. That was the basis of his hope. God was the basis of his hope. The salvation of God was the basis of his hope to do what? Looking ahead to something good in the future, and what was he looking for? Some kind of restoration that would bring him back in a place to where he would worship and praise God. I just use that as an example, because what I want us to do is look at Matthew chapter 9, through this lens, as the, the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus fosters hope. So let's look at beginning in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic uh, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? Pay close attention to verse 6 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority uh, to men. J.R. Packer wrote in one of his books that the secret to soul-fatting Bible study, in other words, the beefing up of a soul and the strengthening of a soul, uh, is uh, to first ask the question, what does the Bible teach me about God? Not what does the Bible have to say to me about me. Initially, is what does it have to say about God? Why? Because as we have seen from the psalmist in chapter 42, uh, as we have sung today in regards to uh, Jesus is our ransom, we need to know about who God is. He went on to say, so often we're taught in methods of Bible study that the first question to ask is, how does this apply to me? But Packer points out that the prime blessing that we derive in the study of Scripture is learning about our God. And that's what we want to do this morning. We want to learn about God. We want to know about Him. We want to know about His glory in Christ. We want to know about His power in Christ. We want to know about His authority. Uh, and ultimately, we want to know about His compassion as well because all of those coming together are the things 
coupled together and bound up in Christ that offer us hope. And therein rest our hope. Jesus' authority fosters the hope that our sins can be forgiven. Notice what takes place here. Jesus getting into a boat crossed over and came to his own city. Now if you'll back up in chapter 8 for just a minute, you'll notice uh, how Matthew is threading this together. Remember, uh, he, in beginning in verse 26, he came to the country of the Gadarenes to two demon-possessed men, and he meet them, and coming out of the tombs, uh, they came out fierce, and no one could control them. And in the end, Jesus cast out the demons and then cast the let, allowed the demons to go into the herd of pigs who plunge uh, off into the ocean uh, and uh, the pigs are destroyed. And if you'll notice in verse 34, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So he got back in a boat and he crossed over. I thought about that text just in how it leads and moves into that. Um, have you ever given consideration what it is to reject Jesus and to push him away? Uh, the people of the, the, the Gadarenes pushed him away, told him to leave, asked him to leave, uh, and he accommodates them and he leaves. Um, I was reminded in the study of the Scripture, we don't ever hear about him going back into that region again. He may have, but in Scripture, we don't hear about him going back into that region. What he does do is he goes away, and when he comes to his own city, and it's pointing to, if we look at the other Gospels, Capernaum, kind of the central location, kind of his hub of ministry. It says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, uh, I had a friend of mine, and many of you have heard me tell about him, but I had a friend of mine that fell in a construction accident uh, back uh, some years ago, severed his spine, and left him a paralytic, left him crippled. He wasn't able to walk again, wasn't able to stand again. Um, I, I'm reminded how he looked for hope to be able to continue, to, to be able to walk again one day. Uh, he was a bad diabetic, uh, developed some sores and stuff on his feet and legs while he was there in the nursing home. And I remember the doctors came to him one day and told him, said, uh, Bill, uh, we need to remove your legs. And he begged them. He said, please don't take my legs off. He said, and this is what he told him. He said, I know that you tell me that I'll never walk again. But he said, if you take my legs off, I know that I will never walk. Uh, he was hopeful that one day, maybe, that God would restore him and, uh, and enable him to be able uh, to walk again. The point of this text is, is that this man was at a place in as far as he knew that apart from Christ, there was no hope that he would ever walk again. And his friends knew that. And he is being carried by them and being brought into the presence of Jesus. Now I want you to imagine this for just a moment. You can't walk. You're paralyzed. Don't know how long the man had been a paralytic. And you come and you are longing for healing. And notice the very first thing that Jesus says to him. He says, take heart. In other words, take hope, son. Your sins are forgiven. 
I believe there are a couple of things that Matthew is trying to help us understand here and that God's Word wants us to understand is that there is sin, it is serious, and it is connected with our diseases and our afflictions at times. And yet, Jesus never points to a particular sin. And we know at other instances in the course of Scripture, uh, even with the, with the man born blind, that the disciples wanted to know what sin had this man committed. And Jesus said uh, it wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't because of his parents' sin. Uh, it was so that God would, could show you, in other words, show his power to you. And yet here we do recognize that the man ultimately at the core of his being, his greatest need was not that he would be raised to walk again, but his greatest need was to have his sins forgiven. And notice, his friends bring them, bring him there. They ask no questions of Jesus. They are not asking him to heal him. All they're wanting to do is get him in the presence of Jesus because they believed and had faith that Jesus could heal him. And Jesus does something greater than raising him up. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. All of us walked in here on our own accord today, uh, with the exception of Providence, and she was rolled in. Uh, but we all came in on our own accord today. We were able to walk in. Um, we did not come in as paralytics physically, but there has been a point in our time, and there are some that are here today who have not professed Christ who are spiritually paralyzed. You are a spiritual paralytic. In other words, you are coming before God today, and we are all coming before God, having need of His forgiveness. I was thinking about this text this week as I was preparing to, for us to talk about it and look at it today. And I really wondered this. I wondered, do we really grasp the significance of the forgiveness of sin? One of the privileges of being under the preaching and teaching of the gospel week after week after week is that we are constantly confronted with our sin and the reality of the forgiveness that rests in Christ alone. Uh, every week as we met, in fact, uh, we met this weekend, the pastors met this weekend, and we were just talking about what we do and how we do it. One of the things that we discussed in the course of what we, what we do, even in our liturgy and our order of worship, is that every week we point to the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon that rests in Christ. I wonder if that gets old to us. Have you ever taken someone to the ocean or been with someone to the beach that has never seen the beach or the ocean before? I have. And they stand in absolute wonder and amazement at the glory and the beauty of the ocean. I've carried them and been there with them. and I don't see what they see. It's because I've become accustomed to it. I've seen it. Uh, I have, to somehow or another, I've been desensitized to the wonder and the glory of the ocean and its vastness. I have to deliberately stop and begin to wonder about it again. I wonder today, 
If in fact we just hear of sin and forgiveness and sin and forgiveness to the point that we have become desensitized to the wonder and glory of the forgiveness of sin. I'm convinced that if we have, then we're going to struggle along the way and even recognizing the wonder and glory of Christ. The point of the text is Jesus was pointing to His authority to forgive sin. Now notice how the scribes respond. They're talking among themselves and they say this man is blaspheming. We don't hear that Jesus overheard them talking. We hear that Jesus knew their thoughts and He said, why do you think evil in your hearts? In other words, here's some things that they got right and here's some things that they didn't get right. The first thing that they got right is, is they understood that God alone was the one who would forgive sin. So for them to hear from Him that He was forgiving sin meant that they were not looking ultimately at the Messiah to be the one to forgive sin. In other words, they are trying to reframe what the Messiah actually came for. We're going to see that again as we look at how they inter- as, as how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. The point is, is that they are looking, not believing that He can forgive sin because only God can forgive sin and yet He has already performed miracles that only God can do and He says here, but that you may know, in verse 6, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then this is what he says to the paralytic. He says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. In other words, Jesus said, let me do the harder thing in forgiving sin. Let me let you see the lesser thing that you think is great so that you will know without a question that I've forgiven sin. So in other words, the proof that he had the authority to forgive sins and had forgiven the man's sins rest in his doing this miracle of raising him up. Jesus' authority fosters the hope that our sins can be forgiven. Do they need to be forgiven? If there's to be any hope for life, they have to be forgiven. What does that mean? When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, He was telling them that I am going to do what only I can do to ensure the fact that what I am claiming for you today is something that you can count on. Now I want you to think about the forgiveness of sin. We all have a category in our mind for forgiving each other, at least in some ways. We have to. We don't exist and stay together as families. We don't stay together as a community. We don't operate within our culture, and we can't have any kind of meaningful relationship with others if we are not willing to forgive at some level. The reason for that is because we all disappoint each other. We all fail each other. You loan somebody a dollar and they don't pay it back, you forgive it and you move on. In other words, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, He was telling this man that your sins will not be counted against you from this point on. 
And ultimately what he was saying is, is that I am God and I am providing the forgiveness that is necessary so that your sins will not be counted against you. We sang Jesus is our ransom this morning for that very reason. I wonder if it has fallen upon us as not important, as not wonderful, as not miraculous, to give consideration to the fact that we are in Christ forgiven our sin. Notice in verse 9. And Jesus passed from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Uh, and he said to him, follow me. And he, meaning Matthew, rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, and the other gospels tell us that he's in Matthew's house, by the way, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." The second thing I want us to pay attention to in this text is that Jesus' authority fosters hope that sinners can be called out of darkness. Not only are they forgiven, but they're called out of darkness. Matthew was called out of darkness. He was a sinner. He was called out of darkness. He was an outcast. He was looked down upon by the rest of uh, by the rest of his not his peers as tax collectors, but his peers as Jews. Why? We've talked about it before. Uh, the tax collectors were Jews operating under the authority of the Roman government. They received taxes, but the way they earned their living was to charge more than what the Roman government charged. And even at times, that was an exorbitant amount because they could. They could do whatever they wanted to do, and they often did it. And in doing that, uh, they were disrespecting uh, their uh, their brothers and sisters, their Jewish family, their, uh, their heritage, their people. Uh, and because of that, they were looked down upon. They were seen as thieves. They were seen as traitors. And Jesus reaches into the midst of this group of people, and He does what? He calls them out, and He says, follow Me. And what does Matthew do? Matthew follows Him. Jesus had the authority to reach into the midst of the darkness and say, come, follow me. In the same way that he reaches into the midst of the darkness and he calls some to follow him. If you've trusted Christ today, there's been an effectual call in your life. In other words, God reached into the midst of your heart, you as an outcast, who would by no other means ever come to Him, and He invited you, offered you, called you, drew you, and brought Him to yourself. Do you see how huge that is? You see, if we fail to see the fact that Jesus forgives sin and, and look at the wonder and the glory of that, we're probably not going to grasp the wonder and the glory and the grace of God when God reaches into our hearts 
and speaks to us and calls us and says, come, trust in me. Come, follow me. Come, serve me. Come, be who I am going to make you. Just think back again at our our confession and our assurance of pardon today. What did we look at? Well, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus that God had raised up by, the, by grace, had saved, had raised up, and called to a newness of life to good works. We sang after that, that we would follow Him, that we would give our lives to Him, that His kingdom's work would be our work by His grace. Most of us, at least without regard to political party, if there is someone that we respected in politics today that made a personal call to us and called us and said, will you serve in this capacity to be a part of the good work that we are trying to accomplish, most of us would at least consider that an honor and probably most all of us would figure out a way to make that happen, even of our own. And yet God calls and speaks to the hearts and lives of men and women and He says, come and be a part of my kingdom and be a part of my redemptive work. I want you to look at this over a contrast of what we read back in 8. And I don't want to go back and teach that again. But notice that God performed this great miracle there in the presence of the Gadarenes. And the people recognized it and they saw it and they saw the wonder of God's glory because here are two demon-possessed men that were unable to be approached. In other words, they were unapproachable not because of the way they smelled, not even because of the way they looked. It was because they were so fiercely dangerous and wild and they had been separated from the community And as we look at the other Gospels, men in the same condition had cut themselves and mutilated their bodies. They were were just, they were completely overcome by the forces of hell. And even even after seeing that, they asked Jesus to leave. And now imagine Matthew being called to follow him. The authority of Jesus gives us hope that God calls, Jesus calls us to salvation. Let's look on a little bit farther, beginning in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we, the Pharisees, fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. What is preserved? Well, the wine and the wineskins are preserved. 
I read this text because Matthew has put it here and he's put it here for a reason and I want us to catch this. There is a danger, and here's a warning for us, there is a danger that we set up as ritual the things that should be genuine in our worship. Think about it today. We'll come to the table. Um, We've met for, now we've met for over three years. So we've met over 150 Sundays. And I'm taking into consideration the number of weeks that we didn't meet, those few weeks we were not together uh, during COVID. We've met for 150 weeks, let's just say. No less than that. And 149 of those 150 weeks, you know what we've done? We've come to the Lord's table. With the exception of one Easter Sunday that we met, we've come to the Lord's table. I was thinking about that in relation to what's going on here. The danger that coming to the Lord's table become a ritual for us. Or the danger of approaching our confession and our assurance of pardon as becoming a ritual for us. You see, what had happened is that fasting had become a ritual. And it was associated with mourning. It wasn't associated with those things of joy. And that's the reason that Jesus tells John's disciples, He said, just wait a minute. There's going to be a time for them to mourn and they'll fast then. They'll be mourning. The bridegroom will not be with them and then they will fast looking ahead to something better. In other words, they're fasting, looking ahead, waiting the return of the bridegroom. But the bridegroom's with them now. But his point was pressed even farther when he uses these examples. He said, no one puts an unshrunk cloth on an old garment. So in other words, uh, we wouldn't take a new piece of cloth that had never been washed and dried, that had not been in the sun and had been wet and then been dried and had shrunk. We would never take that piece of cloth and put it on an old garment because when it did shrink, the threadbare garment and the older garment then would tear more. And then he goes on and he uses another example. He said, uh, and he said, neither would new wine be put into old wineskins. Now you may not understand what that means, but they would kill animals. They'd cut off the head and cut off the feet. They would sew the skin up. And oftentimes the neck of where the animal would come in the skin and they would dry it and everything. And then they would put wine in there. And that's what they would carry their wine and their water and various things with in a piece of, uh, in, in a piece of hide that had been sewn up and had been sealed. Well, his point is, is that you couldn't and would not take new wine and put it into an old wine skin because what would happen is, is in the fermentation process and everything, it would cause the old wine skin to tear apart. He said, no, you put new wine into new wine skins and, and they work together. He said, we are not trying to, in the course of His coming, He was not trying to tag this on to Judaism, but in fact, His coming was speaking to something uh, that everything had been pointing to, 
but it was not going to be just connected with or added to. And I want to go back to verse 1 of chapter 9 because I want to make that point. He said, "...and getting into the boat and crossed over, and he came to his own city." And then in verse 2, "...and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "...take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven." He's pointing to the mercy and the grace of God that has come in him. And his work, let's go back, we held it for verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 12. But when he heard, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now you have to go back to Hosea chapter 6, and if you looked at Hosea as a whole, we come to find out that what was happening there is that Hosea was prophesying that the people had turned into a ritual, the sacrifices, but all along the way had forgotten the mercy. That mercy comes from the Hebrew word hesed, which points to covenant love. So at the heart of what Hosea was saying, he says you have abandoned the understanding of covenant and the intimacy with God and the connection with Him and the mercy and the grace that is poured out to you on God and sacrificing has become nothing more than a ritual so that when we get to fasting, we see the same thing is taking place and Jesus is saying, no, I have come to do what? I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. We have to be careful in asserting these patterns of righteousness and placing them on others. What am I saying? I'm saying that today, as we have an opportunity to come to the table, as we sing, as we confess, as we look at our assurance of pardon, we have to be careful that we do not turn those things into nothing more than rituals. In fact, we have to make sure that we don't turn our time together in coming here into some kind of a ritual that we establish and set up as a means of righteousness. Because it's not. You're not doing God any favor by being here. It's not a check in our list of the do's and don'ts and the goods and the bads and the rights or the wrongs. Our coming together is a coming together because of the covenant love, the mercy of God, which should in fact turn into what? The good works that are that are, that are undergirded by the mercy of God that now reflect and point to His mercy and reflect His mercy. Let's look in verse 18. We go on to read. While He was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before Him saying, My daughter's just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Now, I want you to get that. Listen, my daughter has just died. You come and lay your hands on her, 
and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. I want you to to make a point here. The man asked for Jesus to just touch my daughter. Come and touch my daughter. The woman says, if I can just touch him. And Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart. In other words, take hope. Take heart. Take hope, daughter. Remember he told the man, take heart, my son. He says, take heart, daughter. See the compassion and love. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, he took her by the hand, and the girl rose, and the report of this went out through all the district. The third point that I believe this text makes is Jesus' authority fosters hope that he, he can raise the dead. That's what we celebrated last week. That's what we're celebrating this week. That with His touch, by touching Him, by being connected to Him, we can be raised from the dead. I know you've probably read this text before and you've looked at it maybe even hundreds of times. We have a man who is coming asking for Jesus to intercede on behalf of his daughter, and to give her life. She is literally, physically dead. We have a woman who has suffered for 12 years, been an outcast for 12 years, been unable to go into the synagogue for 12 years. How do we know this? Well, she was unclean. There was no way that she could come to the synagogue. There were all these things that she could not do in her community. Notice how she comes to Him to touch Him. We've made a point of this before, but I want to reiterate this, is that all of these people are coming to Him, Him coming in contact with the dead. All of these things would 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 defile everyone else, and yet they do not defile Him. There is nothing that is too bad that you can't bring it to Jesus. That's the point. Is that those things don't defile Him. Our sin was placed upon Him. We've looked at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see the glory and the wonder in all of that? That there is nothing that we have that is too ugly 
There is nothing that we have that is too bad. There's nothing that we have done that we can't bring to Jesus. Not bringing it already cleaned up because we have no means of making it clean. The paralytic taught us that. There was nothing that he could do to help himself. There was nothing that this woman could do to help herself. There was nothing that this child could do to help herself. She was dead. All of this points to the authority of Jesus to forgive us of our sins, to call us out of darkness, and to give us life. Look in verse 27. And Jesus passed from there. Two blind men followed Him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. Have mercy on us, Son of David. In other words, have mercy on us, King. Have mercy on us, you who are a descendant of David. Have mercy on us, Messiah. And when He entered the house, The blind man came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, According to your faith, be it done. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread its fame through all that district. And then in verse 32, And as they were going away, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee says, He cast out demons by by the prince of demons. If you'll recall back here when we began looking at the authority of Jesus three weeks ago, four weeks now, the last point that we made was because Jesus' authority is God's authority, He should be trusted and obeyed. I want you to catch this. Matthew is pointing to the reality of that for us. I hope it falls on us well here today. Go back the first part of chapter 9. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. What do we see present there? A trust in the authority of Jesus. Fully developed? Not fully developed, but developed enough in the hearts of his friends and in the heart of the man whose sins were forgiven and who was raised up. Not a, not a faith and a trust. In, they, they, they trusted in what they knew. And they knew if I get my friend to him, he will be raised. And the friend being willing, saying, Take me there. Get me to Jesus. And He can heal me. Look in verse 18. 
And when he was saying these things, behold, the ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. What is that a demonstration of? A demonstration of the fact that he was saying, I trust in your authority. Come raise her up. Verse 22, he turns to this woman who comes and says, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Where is the confidence and the hope? The basis of that hope and that confidence is in Jesus. What do we hear with the two blind men? When he entered the house, the blind men came in to him and Jesus said to them do you believe that I'm able to do this and they said to him yes Lord we believe yes Lord we believe what's the point the point is because Jesus' authority is God's authority he should be trusted and obeyed Jesus authority fosters hope our hope is directly connected to our faith not in hope but in the one who is hope jesus christ why stress this i'm going to tell you why i'm stressing it Because there are times, I even shared with Booney and Adam this week, there are times when we are weary. Physically, spiritually, emotionally. Physically. There are times when we are distraught there are times when we are worried. There are times when we are anxious. There are times when we are sick. There are times when we are under great temptation. And all of those times, the basis of our hope is Christ. And listen to this. For those who have not yet trusted Christ. Your only hope is in Christ. Do you hear that? Please get this. Your only hope is in Christ. Apart from Him, there will be no hope. There's not another hope. There is only one hope. The hope is in Christ Jesus and His atoning work for you. There is no other means of forgiveness and apart from forgiveness from God, there is damnation. There's only one hope for life and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one hope of you being raised to life in this life 
and into eternity, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew continues to put the spotlight on this king who has the authority to do everything that needs to be done in our lives. What do we do? What do we do? We either trust Him or we as much as say what we would all declare from reading this text today as foolishness, we would as the people of Gadarene said, please go away. Please go away. Or we can respond in faith.